Well, good morning. It is, it is a blessing to be here, to see you all, see a lot of familiar faces, and it's even fun to see some new faces, too. Uh, again, so my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors at Northwest Bible Church. Um, yeah, I recognize many of you from there. And just a quick update on our family. Jacob shared some of this. Uh, over the past few years, the Lord has given me a, a burden for uh, several things. One of them is for, for church planting, for more regular preaching, and also be closer to my family. If you haven't noticed, I'm not from here. I'm from <laughs> North Carolina. I've been here in Minnesota for about 11 years now. And he's really brought all these different desires and passions to one place. And so the plan is for us in June of this year to transition back home to North Carolina. I'm going to be landing in a church just outside Raleigh. Um, you, some of you may be familiar with Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena. It's a weird-sounding place. It's a real name, though, Fuquay, Verena. So we're going to be there for about a year and a half to two years. And the plan is that they would then send me out as a church planter somewhere in eastern North Carolina. We've got a lot to happen between now and then. Uh, my wife is pregnant. We're probably going to have a, another little baby, little baby boy. The end of March, early April, something like that. So we've got a lot of transitions to, to make. So I appreciate your prayers. And it's just, again, it's just such a blessing to be able to be here and to see you all again before all that happens. Um, before I pray, before I preach, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a, a sure and steady anchor for our souls. So I pray that as we look at your words today, that you would encourage us, that you would help us. I pray that where we lack knowledge, you, you would give it. You would give truth. I pray that where we need forgiveness, that you would bring correction and repentance. And I pray for where we need encouragement, that you would bring hope. We need you. We desperately need you. So I pray that you would supply your spirit through your word this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I get the privilege to talk today about one of my favorite things. It's really about the Lord Jesus Christ and about how Jesus changes every single part of our lives. Jesus is obviously at the center of the Bible. Jesus is at the center of all of human history. Jesus is the kind of person that when you encounter Jesus, nothing stays the same. Jesus changes the course for our lives. Jesus sets what, who we are. Jesus changes what we do. And he does those things in that order. He changes who we are, and he changes what we do. How many of you like superhero, comic book kind of stuff? Raise your hands. Nope. Okay. I've got like three nerds in the room. I'm one of them. Okay. I like this kind of stuff, right? And every good hero has a good origin story. And most of them start the same way, right? The person starts out pretty normal, no special talents or skills. To this point, I would be a great candidate. He has, like, no skills to really write about, but then something happens, right? He gets bit by a radioactive spider or some kind, of, some kind of special serum in him, right? And then he gets these talents. He gets these powers, these skills, and everything is great, right? But then something happens. Then, like, bad things happen. Tragedy. Your Uncle Ben dies. That's very specific. Like, somebody dies. You lose something. Everything gets ruined. And then you have a decision, like, which way you're going to go, right? What's going to happen? There's this choice. Right? With, with great power comes great responsibility. See, some of you are more nerdy than I thought, right? But no matter the details, the origin stories always start the same way. 
And they, they show how they experience some kind of change in their identity. Some kind of change in who they are. And then after that, they, they see this mission that's set before them. So they're changed in their identity, and then they're given this mission, this task to fulfill. And I, I'd argue that this isn't something that, that comic books just made up. This is a very regular pattern in, in human life. And you could even see some of this pattern in the Bible. Um, and even in the naming of individuals. For example, so Eve's name means mother of all living. And that's what she came to be after Adam named her that. Abram was given the new name Abraham, meaning father of many nations. And that's what happened. That's what the task after that he was named that happened, right? Moses' name means out of the water. And, and he delivered God's people through the waters. Out of the water, he saved God's people. So time and time again, we see that God gives people in the Bible these names. He gives them a new name. He gives them a new identity. And he transforms them into that thing. And he gives them a mission. He gives them something to do with that. And that's what we see in our passage for today. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And, and I think you'll see that, that here that Jesus brings us in, giving us a new identity, a change to the very core of our person, and he sends us out on a new mission together. So it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Um, please read along with me as I read. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So I know I'm kind of coming in and, and plopping down in the middle of a book. So really brief background to what's happened so far in the book of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to encourage elect exiles. So people that would have been displaced because of their faith in Jesus. And they were experiencing like really growing persecution, growing opposition because of their devotion to Jesus. But they didn't need to be afraid because this was not outside of God's plan. God plans for his people to suffer. It's one of the great themes of every Christian life is suffering. It's one of the great themes of 1 Peter. So this was not outside of God's plan. But not only that, Jesus, Jesus as the cornerstone of our salvation, the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus suffered too. So Peter talks about how Jesus is really the model for persevering through suffering. And while Christians, we experience suffering now, those who hold on to Jesus are going to be honored. And we're going to be built into this spiritual house for God's glory, the beginning of chapter 2 talks about. But those who reject Jesus will stumble. So Jesus is like this dividing line between all humanity. Where you land on the Jesus question changes everything for you. But unlike those who stumble and those who disobey Jesus, the church, God's people, don't do that. And it says, there, there are, I think there are two big reasons why we can be assured that we won't do that. And it's our identity and our mission. 
who we are, and what we do. So I think this passage shows us that Jesus brings us in with a new identity and he sends us out on a new mission. And that's really the basic outline for today, those two big points. So let let me begin by looking at the new identity we have, we've been given in Christ. Peter talks about this by giving four different descriptions of the church. You can see that in verse 9. Four different descriptions. And each of these phrases, these descriptions, is strongly tied to an Old Testament passage. The church is called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And these two passages are from Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43. So let me begin by reading each of these passages really quickly. Exodus, Exodus, that's not a book. Exodus is, though, in this Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And it says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if you were listening, you would have heard some of those phrases, right? These words are given to Israel right before they were to receive the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. That's just coming up in the next chapter in Exodus. So God was setting his people apart, and he was telling them who they are, and what he was going to do with them. And how, really how to live. And in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they were set apart to be a light to the nations for the glory of God. They were meant to show everybody how glorious and wonderful and good and great the Lord is. So this really set the Jewish people apart from the rest of mankind. So it really t- to know God would be, be through Israel in the Old Testament. So keep those things in mind. The other passage that these, some of these four descriptors come from is, is Isaiah chapter 43, verse, verses 20 and 21. Starting in verse 20, he says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So, I think what Peter was doing, he was taking these two passages and he was applying them to the church. So again, in Isaiah, this was given to Israel at a really important time in their life as a people. This was a promise that while they were about to be exiled to Babylon, that God was going to deliver them because they were his special people. They were his chosen people. So putting these two things together, these two passages that Peter is, is, is quoting and alluding to, is really talking about Israel around the two most important times in their lives as a people. It was the Exodus and the exile to Babylon. Like almost all of like Israel's history is around those two points. And everybody, every Jew would have known this, right? This would be like talking to Americans about July 4th and the Civil War. Like uh, the, the history of our nation is, is hinging on these two big things. So every single Jew would have known these passages and they would have had just deep, deep significance to them and who they were as a people. But here, Peter is doing something interesting. He's applying these passages, these things that would have been given to Israel, and he's applying them to the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So he's applying them to a broader group of people. So Peter is saying that God's chosen people It is no longer limited to ethnic Israel, but it includes every single person 
who's united to Jesus. Now, this, is a, this topic is way bigger than I can get into today, right? The relationship between the church and Israel. But I think this is one of the primary passages in the New Testament that shows that Gentiles have been grafted in to God's people through Christ. So that anybody, anybody who is connected to Jesus is as part of the fulfillment of these promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament. We, we receive these new covenant blessings. We are children of Abraham in a very real sense. We inherit these blessings that were promised to Israel. And, and here, we're, we're given a new name. We're given a whole new identity through Jesus. And I want us to consider each of these names in greater detail. But before, I think it's important that the focus here isn't primarily on individuals. It's, the focus is really on the group, right? We're a race, that's plural. We're, we're a priesthood, a nation, a people. These are all plural concepts, these are groups. So the focus is not on the individual Christian, but the, really the church as a whole and how we fit into that. And it's obvious that these things are true for individuals, but that's not really the, the focus that Peter's given on it. He, he's showing that it's, it is in and it is through the church that we experience and enjoy and appreciate these realities how God intended us to. And I think it's important to say that because in, in our individualistic society, it is really easy to forget that we are interdependent on one another, that we need each other and we enjoy the Christian life most thoroughly in community with one another and the church. And I think these, these four descriptions that God gives to his people uh, help flesh this out. So first, he says that you are a chosen race. That word race can also be translated as offspring or, or family or kind. And it's often used in terms of ethnic or familial connections that we might have. But, but here it's applied to the church. And Israel, obviously, Israel was marked by its ethnicity, by its lineage or natural birth from Abraham, right? But the church is marked by its spiritual birth, its spiritual, spiritual lineage and connection to Christ. And it's in that sense that we are chosen because we are in Christ. And if you look back into uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it says that Jesus is chosen, and precious in the sight of God. So since we are united to him, we experience union with Christ, we too, we're, we're chosen, and we're precious in God's sight. So that those who are in him, those who are in Christ, are, are part of the church, and they make up, we make up, an entirely new people. We are not connected by birth, race, or ethnicity, but we're connected together as a church by our connection to Jesus, by faith in Jesus. And this means, this is really important, this means that connection to the church through, through Christ actually transcends racial differences that might happen within the church. So being part of God's people is more important than your skin color, than your racial background. Now, that doesn't mean that those things don't matter at all, not for a second. But those things are less important to, to who you are as a person in Christ. 
And, and this actually paves the way for spiritual unity in the midst of racial diversity. So people, we're told in Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and race can. And we will be made one together in Christ. So the spiritual unity that we have, it, it transcends those racial differences, but it also beautifies them. And this, this is a word that our, our world desperately needs today. And the gospel gives us an answer. That the primary hope for, for racial reconciliation that we see, it's not going to be found beginning with politics or, or programs or social reform. Our hope is in Jesus. And Paul said in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. So it changes who we are and how we think of ourselves and our identity. Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. The next thing we see, we're told that we are a royal priesthood. So this, this comes from Exodus chapter 19, where God refers to Israel. He, there he says, a kingdom of priests. Again, we know this, right? In the Old Testament, the priests came from one nation, Israel, and even there, only one tribe, Levi. But here it's applied broadly again. The entire church is part of this royal priesthood. And they're royal because they serve under King Jesus. The church is, in that sense, is the most privileged people group on the planet. Like, we get to serve as priests under King Jesus. We get to be a part of that. Because no earthly queen or king or president or prime minister or authority or whatever has anything close to the beauty and the honor and the glory and the power of King Jesus. And we get to serve under him. Like, can you believe that? Like, this is a big deal for us. But then he keeps going. He says that we're part of this priesthood. And in the Old Testament, priests had, had, a, had a kind of a dual purpose. They, they mediated God's blessings to the nations, but they also, they had access to God on behalf of the people. So it was like there were these mediators. But they had access to God in a way that other people didn't. Here, being part of this royal priesthood means that you can have access to God. You have access to him. We call this concept the priesthood of all believers. So you don't need an earthly priest to approach God for you. You can enter God's presence with more boldness, with more confidence than the holiest high priest ever could because of Jesus. You can confidently draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find help in your time of greatest need. And you can do that because of the new identity that Jesus has given you. So Jesus changes everything. The third description we see is that of a holy nation. The nation of Israel was holy in the sense that it was set apart. It was set apart for God's special purpose. But they largely rejected that purpose. They disobeyed God's commandments. They, they rebelled against God's rule. They rejected God's Messiah, Jesus. That doesn't mean that God is forever done with Israel, but it does mean that in his plan, he's using Israel's rejection. This is Romans 9 through 11. He's using Israel's rejection 
to bring in even more people into the family of God. And that's where we come in. So we are now called, the church is called this holy nation. We've been set apart for God's glory. We've been set apart for the good of all creation. We've been set apart to be a light to the nations. And just as our connection to God's people, to the church, through Jesus, it transcends ethnic or racial differences that we have, this means that our connection as a church, Grace Bible Church, your connection, it transcends even national identity as well. That our relation to the holy nation of the church is more significant, is more vital to who you are as a person than our connection to any other earthly nation. The church you belong to is more important than the country you were born in. It's more important. And that may sound radical. It it probably should. But it's true. God's church is going to outlive, is going to outlast every other nation on the planet. Not only that, but God's church is going to be composed of people from every nation on the planet. Every people group. God is doing something special here. He's doing something different, something unique. And we get to be part of it. So Jesus changes every single part of who we are. He changes everything. And the last descriptor we see is that we are a, a people for his own possession. So the church is now part of the treasured possession of God. And, and even to think about this devotionally, there, there are few, few greater comforts than, than to recognize and to realize that we belong to God. We're his The first question from the Heidelberg Catechism, which I'm sure all of you read this morning, asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that I'm not my own. At Northwest, this is one of the questions we ask every single person who joins our church. So as God's people, we belong to him. And this should, give us, this should give us a lasting hope and comfort that nothing, that nobody can snatch us out of the Father's hands. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because we belong to him. So because of this new identity that we have, we've been given People from every ethnicity, every nation are invited into the church. We're given access to God through this priesthood. We are kept safe and we are secure as his treasured possession. Jesus has brought us here. He's given us a new identity. He's changed us at the very core of who we are as people. But he doesn't just leave us there. He he brings us in. But we're told that he does this with a distinct purpose in mind. He's got something he's doing. He's given us this new identity so that we could fulfill his glorious mission. He brings us in, and then he sends us out on mission together. So what is the mission, right? He's given us a new identity. He's given us a new mission. Again, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, that you, right? That's a purpose statement. He's done this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This is the reason. This is the purpose of the church, to proclaim God's excellencies. This is why Grace Bible Church exists, so that you, as a church, might proclaim the excellencies of God. This is why God has chosen us. This is why he elects us. This is the chief end of every person and every church on the planet to proclaim his excellencies, to to spread the fame of God all around the world. And and we have the privilege of both receiving the greatest news the planet has ever heard, but also in proclaiming it to as many people as we possibly can. That that word here that's translated proclaim is the verb form of euangelion. You might hear the word evangel, right? This means gospel, good news. This passage is about evangelizing the world with the excellencies and the good news of who God is. And I think we can understand God's excellence, proclaiming them anyway, in really two different ways. I'm going to say broadly and then more specifically. Broadly, it means that we, as Christians, as a church, we need to take time to see and to savor and proclaim everything that is excellent about God. Right? We, spread, we want to spread the news of his wisdom, of his power, his grace, his mercy, his love, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his plan, his sovereignty. All, everything that is excellent about God, we just proclaim it to as many people as we can. So we need to develop the ability to see these things, to see these things around the world and then point them to people, remind people of them. Right? That's us broadly. But I think this passage is pointing to something even more personal than that in a very real sense. Because it says, we are to proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So again, there's lots of applications. I'm going to zero in here. I think one application is about your testimony of salvation. How God has saved you. This is a story about how God came to you. You were a sinner in absolute darkness with no hope, and God gave you new life. God gave you new identity. He brought you into a new people. He brought you into his marvelous light. So think about that. Like when, when you hear someone's testimony, like when they join the church, it's really the same story over and over again. The details change, but, but the big picture, the big narrative, it's the same. It always starts out that you were a hopeless sinner. You were in darkness. But Jesus came to you, not because you were great, you were good. In spite of your badness, in spite of your sin, he came to you. And he offered you grace. He offered you his own righteousness. He offered you forgiveness. And, and, and you accepted his offer by faith that he also gave you. So he saved you. He brought you to his family. And this, this is a miracle of a story. There's never been, there never will be a boring testimony. So never feel that about yourself, that you have a boring testimony. Like, this is a miracle that God has done in your heart. So one challenge I would give to you with all this is for you to remember and for you to rehearse the story about how God changed you, what God did for you, what God did in you. Sharing your testimony for membership should not be the only time this happens, Right? And it doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it should not be complicated. Most often, the most effective testimonies are the simple ones. So just describe in an appropriate, in brief detail, 
who you were before, how God saved you, and who you are now, right? Before, how, and after. It's, it's that simple. And when you do that, when you share, make sure that you make that gospel message really clear. That means you maybe need to avoid like religious jargon that Christians understand, but non-Christians might not get. Like we know what we mean by I asked Jesus into my heart, but people who've never heard the gospel, that won't make a lot of sense to them. Right? You should say, I saw that I was a sinner. I saw that Jesus was my only hope. And I believe that he forgave me, and, and he did. He saved me. Right? It's, it's that simple. So make the gospel clear enough so that when you're explaining it, when you're sharing it, other people can hear enough of the gospel that they know how they need to respond to that same message. Your story may not be flashy, may not be fancy, may not be this, this crazy night and day story about who you were and who you are now. But if you make the gospel clear, if you make Jesus big, then you are literally proclaiming the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Every single Christian, every single church should be doing this. This is not only the job of pastors and preachers. Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman who has experienced, who has been called into God's light, has been called to proclaim that story to other people. And, and this is how Grace Bible Church can make the biggest impact in this community, in Monticello, is by doing just this. Not by proclaiming your excellencies. We don't do this by proclaiming our excellencies, but God's excellencies. Not by showing everyone how we have our stuff together, but showing everybody how good and great and gracious and merciful God is and has been to us and can be to them. And Peter concludes this, this, this little passage, verse 10, with a reminder of grace. Really, a reminder of this testimony that they have, that we all have as Christians. He said, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage is taken from the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who was called to confront Israel's sins of idolatry and a kind of spiritual adultery. And he was called by God to marry an unfaithful woman to serve as a living picture of the kind of thing that God has done for, has done for his people, God's faithfulness, really in the face of the sin of his bride. And Hosea fathered children with that woman. And to underscore God's anger and frustration with Israel, Hosea gave these children some striking names. One daughter was named No Mercy because God would have no mercy on his adulterous people. Another son he had was named Not My People for God had said that they were not his people and he was not their God. So you might think you've heard some weird names these are some strange names, right? These are weird names. But they, they show how serious God was in his righteous anger towards his people. But that is not the final word of Hosea. That's not the final word of our story. In Hosea 2.23, the Lord promises that he will relent from his anger and he will once again draw near. I'm going to read some of this passage. I want you to listen 
for the words that we've read in 1 Peter. He says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So that's what Peter's quoting here in verse 10. And the reason it's important for you, for, for me, this is our story. Like this, this is us. We're like the people of Israel. We had no hope. We didn't have mercy. We weren't even a people. But God has made us his own. God has shown us amazing grace and mercy. And this reminder of grace ought to produce at least two things in your heart this morning. First, it should produce humility. We were not a people. We had no mercy. We deserved nothing but wrath and judgment and punishment from God. We should never forget that. We should never forget what God has saved us from. It keeps us from thinking too much of ourselves. It keeps us from getting cocky about maybe who we are now. God didn't choose us like we might choose teams in dodgeball. He didn't choose us because we were the best. We were the brightest. We were the tallest. I'm thankful for that. He didn't choose us for any of those reasons, right? He first loved us when we were still sinners. When we had, we had nothing to offer him. While we were still set against him. Like that's a humbling thought. Remembering our sinful and our hopeless past ought to keep us from thinking too much of ourselves, but it also keeps us from thinking too little of other people who might not be Christians right now or maybe aren't living the kind of life that we think they should be living. Every person is in the same position before the cross. We're all just needy. We have nothing to offer. So this gives us humility. But the other thing that this story should tell us, that our story should tell us, it should give us a sense of confidence at the same time. Yeah, you weren't a people, but now you are. You didn't have mercy, but now you do. And our efforts to proclaim God's excellencies, it's, it's important that we, we move with confidence that we're not going at it alone, that we're not by ourselves in doing this, that we are the Lord's, we're his treasured possession. He's with us. We belong to him. We're his people. He's going to continue to give us mercy. He's going to continue to give us grace and help in our efforts at spreading the gospel. So we don't do this alone. But there's also confidence in knowing that not only do we have God, we have one another. We have a group that we're doing this. We have a church. We're a people. And even as Christians on our own, like, we can grow discouraged. We can lose heart. We can lose hope. But we have each other. Like, you have one another as a church to keep one another going. So that you don't only have your individual story about what God did for you, but, but you, you share your story collectively with one another. And you remind one another that you have each other, that God is with you, what God has done for you to save you. Now, right now, you might be hearing all this and, and agreeing with me. Like, yeah, that sounds good. But instead of feeling confidence... You might feel a 
a kind of impending guilt more than anything else. When you think about sharing the gospel and, and proclaiming the excellences of God, you primarily think of, of missed opportunities where you, you were just afraid, where you were nervous. You think of times where, where the person you were sharing the gospel, that they rejected the gospel and you left feeling really dejected and down. If this is you, you are not alone. I have a confession for you. I stink at evangelism. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I struggle with it. It is, uh, I'm not very good at it. I, I, I get nervous. I often keep waiting for just the right time to share the gospel with somebody, but that time just conveniently never comes, right? We just keep waiting and waiting, keep pushing it off. I often forget to even pray for opportunities to share the gospel. We should be praying that every day, by the way. I don't pray for that every day. Just being honest with you. I often feel like evangelism is something I have to do, not something I get to do. I'm a mess. So if that's you, you're not alone. If it's not you, I'm, I'm happy. Happy for you. This is me. But this passage isn't for those who got it all figured out. That's why I love it. It's for strugglers and weaklings like me. Because why do you think Peter, of all people, took so much time saying all these things? Again, because of all people, he knows what it's like to deny Jesus at the pivotal moment. He knows the guilt and regret that goes along with lousy evangelism. Peter gets it. But this is the best part. Peter's weakness allows him to appreciate and rest in the strength and the power of God that much more. So you stink at evangelism. Join the club. So what? Okay? Your weakness, your inadequacy in this area don't have to be hindrances that stop you from moving forward. It can help you realize your reliance, your dependence on the Lord even more. Your dependence on the God who gave you mercy. And that he can give mercy to whomever he wills. And this is the mission that God has called you to. Both as an individual Christian, but also as a church. So we can have confidence that he's going to make it happen. So with all this, Jesus, again, Jesus changes everything. Everything. He brings us in. He sends us out. He gives us this new identity. He gives us a new mission. He's called us his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And he's done that so that we might participate with him and proclaiming his excellencies to everybody. I read all those things. We are the most blessed people on the face of the planet. We have the best job in the universe. And it's only going to get better from here. Because there's going to be a day when Jesus brings us in fully. And finally. And we're going to reign with him and worship him and proclaim his excellencies perfectly forever. Until then, we got a job to do. He's given us a mission. And we need the help of the church. And of course, we need the help of God himself to do it. So pray with me right now that God would give us the humility and the confidence to carry out this task for his glory and for the good of other people. God, we come to you and we do feel this sense of guilt. Many of us do. I pray that you would help us to move with 
with humility that we would move forward knowing that you provide not only forgiveness for our sins. A long time ago, you, you provide forgiveness for the sins of lousy evangelism. And I pray that even those struggles would help us more effectively proclaim your grace and your mercy to people who know better. So help us. And I also pray that if there's anybody in this room who's hearing this, this message of Jesus for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, who has yet to respond to that message with repentance and faith, I pray that you would do your work of bringing new life into that heart. I pray that you would help Grace Bible Church to be a regular means of encouragement and blessing and grace and mercy to their community. We love you. We want to love you more. So we pray for your grace to do so. Pray that you'll bless the rest of the service and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.